Greetings growers, it's your host Jane Perrone here and today we're stepping into the plant kingdom accompanied by an expert guide, botanist Dr Scott Zona. He's here to reveal some of the secrets of his new book A Gardener's Guide to Botany and I've got a response about fluval stratum for the Q&A section. I've always been a great advocate of learning as much as you can about your plants, hence the botany strand of this here podcast. So I was delighted to get a copy of the new book by Dr. Scott Zona called A Gardener's Guide to Botany. And I liked it so much, I did uh, a blurb on the back of the book for him. And he's joining me this week to tell me all about the book, how we all need to venture deeper into the plant kingdom to understand our plants, but also because it's really super fascinating and helps us look after our plants better, which is also really vital. My name is Scott Zona, and I'm coming to you from Hillsborough, North Carolina. Good morning, Scott. Well, it's, it's, it's very morning for you right now. Thank you for, <laughs> for agreeing to talk to me about your new book, which I'm very excited about. It's called A Gardener's Guide to Botany. And this is much needed. I mean, actually, I should I should say from the outset, I'm actually quoted on the back cover. So I'm excited. And I do say this is the book I've been waiting for. This is a must read for all gardeners who want to expand their knowledge of understanding the plants they grow. And I I stand by that. Uh, I think, you know, as anyone who's listened to the show for a while will know, this is one of the things I'm passionate about is educating people about botany. And I learned loads from reading this book, I have to say. So I'm sure listeners will, too. Why do you think, though, that it's important for us, like, you know, me and other, in inverted commas, amateur, which I kind of, I'm not sure about that word, but hobby growers, why why do we need to know about this stuff in the first place? And what kind of things can people expect to, to learn from your book? Well, I think, as in with anything in life, knowledge is power. So knowing plants, knowing how they grow, knowing what they're doing, I think, translates into making us better growers. Um, that's at least that's kind of my hope. But it also it I think it learning about plants connects us to our plants. And I would also hope that it would connect us to the natural world in general, the natural world outside our homes, uh, because, you know, we need to care about that. Um, and uh, and I also find that learning something is I don't know, maybe it sort of keeps me young. I, I learned loads while I was doing the research and, you know, uh, writing the book. So it satisfies some curiosity. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, if you can just understand what's going on with your plant and how the basic processes are working, it helps enormously, I find. And in the intro to the book, you talk about this idea of going into the plant kingdom and exploring it. And I love that idea that you could actually kind of, you know, imagine yourself heading into this amazing plant-filled domain, kind of a metaphor, but also kind of literally too. But it strikes me that for a lot of people, this is a mystery domain, a place where we don't necessarily know as much as we should. Have you come across any sort of 
misconceptions along the way of teaching people about botany, about how plants work that have kind of made your eyebrows raise? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> loads. Um, and, you know, for me, it's 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 kind of hard to imagine not being interested in plants. I've been growing plants since I was six years old. And uh, but over the, over the years, teaching uh, plant courses, botany courses, uh, I would we'd be out in the in in usually in the botanical garden looking at plants, and I'd be talking about it. And students would be you know there'd be a dozen students, and they'd all be like six feet back. And this was before social distancing, you know, they'd be way back there, and I'd be talking about the smell of the plant, and. They, you know, if somebody was telling me about the smell of a plant, my nose would be right in there. But, you know, I, there, a couple of students would come forward and smell the plant, but most of them would kind of hang back. And and they seemed very, um, I don't know, maybe fearful of, you know, that plants are some sort of, I don't know, out to get them poisonous, delicate, I don't know. Um, and I think for a lot of students, that's, uh, you know, it's, 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 takes a little effort to kind of overcome this idea that plants are something you look at but don't touch. Uh, and then also, for some people, I think plants are just sort of the, the green backdrop of life. Um, and they don't, they don't look more closely at that until they start getting into botany. And then suddenly, this green backdrop comes into focus and they begin to see plants as individual plants and see them for what they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's hard for me to imagine being that way because I'm not that way. I, I, you know, whenever I go places, the first thing I look at is the plants and, and then maybe I'm looking at where I'm going and <laughs> who I'm supposed to meet and all that. Being a lifelong plant person, I kind of had to adopt a different mentality writing the book because, uh, I know not everybody thinks like I do. Absolutely. Yeah. I have nearly crashed my car several times while looking <laughs> at plants. I'm not going to lie. And one of the things that I think this book is is really strong on is making what are admittedly quite complex concepts for those of us who haven't studied botany at you know a high level, actually understandable. And I mean, one of the things I really loved was the way you use the metaphor of a Lego set for explaining the way that plants grow. Can you just explain that for our listeners? Yeah, well, unlike animals, plants have a very different way of growing. Um, animals are pretty, you know, we're all familiar with animals. We're all familiar with, with humans. We start out as small children and we grow up, and but we don't gain any more parts along the way. But plants aren't like that. Plants are built of repeating units, uh, and that's called the phytomer. And these repeating units can be just stacked up in ways to basically like a Lego set to build plants. And the unit comprised, is comprised of the node and the inner node on the stem, and then the leaf that's attached to the node, and then the axillary bud, which is that little often dormant bud that sits there down where the leaf joins the stem on the node. And basically by stacking those up, you can make a plant. Uh, and then by changing parts of it, you can make all the different kinds of plants. So you can have, if you shrink down the inner node and it's so that it's essentially non-existent, then you can have like a rosette plant. So something like an African violet or a Tillandsia air plant, those are rosette plants, basically just rosettes of leaves. Um, 
and by, uh, or you could just take the basic, you know, generalized plant and remove the leaves. And then you've got a stem succulent like a, a euphorbia or a cactus. Um, or you could put the stem on its side and then you have a creeping, uh, creeping, like a creeping rhizome on, say, I don't know, a fern maybe, uh, or an orchid, a cattleya orchid. Uh, so, so the, at least the above ground plant parts of the plant are kind of built to these repeating units. Um, but what is really kind of interesting is that the below ground plants, the roots are not built on repeating units. They're, you know, roots can branch any, any which way they need to branch. Um, and they don't depend on that, uh, that repeated unit, uh, where branching occurs only through that axillary bud, that, that little dormant bud there at the node. Uh, so I, th- I think it's kind of remarkable to me that there's this very different ways of growing both in the same plant. The above ground parts are these repeated units and the below ground plants are uh, pretty much free form growth. Uh, and that a leaf cutting, for example, if you take a leaf cutting of a uh, African violet, uh, it will put out roots and then eventually make a little plant and that plant will grow on to make an adult plant. Uh, but that leaf cutting, which is from the above ground part of the plant, has the ability to make the roots, which then behave like roots and grow below the ground. So uh, I find that very interesting. Uh, I don't know if other people get off on that as much as I do, but <laughs> I really <laughs> think it's amazing. I do too. And uh, going on to roots, I I think this is uh, another phrase from your book that I really enjoyed was when you called roots the dark matter of the plant universe. So true. Like we just don't think about those roots enough, really, do we? Um that's and I'm right. always telling people to look at the roots, but I mean, we've, so we've established they're not doing the same kind of growth pattern as the above ground of the plant. But I mean, obviously they're taking in water and nutrients, but what are roots actually doing? They can do a lot of things. I think they certainly can take up water and nutrients, and that's one of their primary functions, of course. Um, and then the other, probably I'd call it also a primary function, would be to support the plant. So it's got to, the plant has got to somehow support itself, whether it's in soil or as an epiphyte growing on, for example, on the, on the, the, the branch of a tree, the roots there to hold the plant in place. So it doesn't just, you know, fall over or roll around, whatever. Absorption and support are the, the two primary or main functions. But then you get secondary functions in, uh, that depending on the species, uh, some roots can be photosynthetic. For example, so, you know, we know a lot of epiphytic orchids have photosynthetic roots and the root tips are nice, bright green, or at least they should be if they're healthy roots. Uh, roots are important places for the manufacture of a lot of the uh, important chemicals that plants normally manufacture, especially some of the defensive chemicals. So, for example, a phalaenopsis orchid, a moth orchid, makes defensive chemicals that it puts into its flowers. And, you know, moth orchid flowers, phalaenopsis flowers, last a long time, typically. And in nature, of course, anything is that's sitting around for a long time is going to be eaten by, by something. Uh, so the plants are putting a lot of defense, a lot of their defensive chemistry right into the flowers to keep those flowers from being eaten so that they can attract the pollinators and do their job. 
Uh, but the chemicals, the alkaloids that they're making are manufactured down in the roots and then transported up into the above ground parts of the plant and then the, uh, ultimately the flowers. So roots are important sources of chemistry inside the plant. Uh, roots can also be storage. Of course, we know about storage roots, uh, especially in plants from succulent areas. So, and then sometimes you even see roots that are involved in defense, uh, at least in, uh, I can't think of any house plants that do this, but certainly there are some palms that produce, uh, little roots from their, their trunks. And these roots then kind of grow out for a few, a few centimeters, then harden off and become spine-like. So you have root spines in some palms. So those are just off the top of my head, some of the things that roots are doing in plants, but they, but you're right. They could do a lot more than just absorbing water and nutrients. I'm getting a bit obsessed with fungi right now, having started to read the, um, there's a book by a guy called Merlin Sheldrake called, I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, it's this amazing book. And it's made me think really differently about interactions between roots and fungi. And I'm wondering what's going on. It seems to me like we don't know we know maybe 5% of what's actually happening with roots and fungi and their interaction so far. <laughs> 5% might be generous, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's another thing that roots are really important is that they are they are the, the, the place where a plant is interacting with all kinds of, of interesting microorganisms, including fungi. Uh, and that may not always be happening in houseplants because, of course, houseplants are growing under very, let's face it, very artificial conditions for, uh, it's not exactly replicating what's happening in, out in nature, but, um, certainly in nature, uh, roots are really important for things like mycorrhizae or nitrogen fixing bacteria. Uh, and then also lots of bacteria that are, and fungi that are living just on the surface of the roots. They're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, causing any disease or anything like that. They're, they're living with the plant and they are beneficial to the plant. There's a group of bacteria that are called, and I think I mentioned in the book, that are, that are called, uh, I see, plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. So plant growth promoting, that's obvious. And then rhizobacteria, meaning rhizo, meaning root. Uh, so these are bacteria that grow on the roots of plants and promote plant growth, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a hot area of research right now because I think, uh, uh, the scientific, uh, you know, botanists are, are beginning to realize that plants are not growing in isolation. Even house plants are not growing in a totally sterile environment. Uh, and that there's lots of things going on, especially down at the roots where, you know, as I say, we just don't, we don't see them. We don't think about them, but they're basically half of the plant is their underground. Yeah, I think we've got so much more to learn. And as you say, I'm starting to see more mycorrhizal fungi products coming onto the market to do with house plants. I guess everyone's mm. sort of switching on to this. I don't know how successful they are. I'm guessing that like it's a very blunt weapon, as it were, because each species would have a very specialist set of interactions and, and species that they would be adapted to working with. But I mean, it's interesting that that's, we're starting to move in that direction of at least thinking about that stuff now. Back when I went to college, which was, you know, a hundred years ago, um, 
plant physiologists, people interested in the growth of plants, uh, the first thing they, they maybe test the soil and they, the first thing they do is they stick a soil sample in a, in a furnace and burn off all the carbon, get rid of all the carbon, all the organic matter. And then they test the soil for, uh, you know, how much iron is in the soil in parts per million or how much magnesium is in the soil. And we're now coming around to the idea that the living parts of the soil, everything that's burned off when they put the sample in a furnace, all the living parts of the soil are really super important in terms of nutrient uptake for the, for the plant and because of these things like these bacteria and the fungi, the mycorrhizal fungi and all the other kinds of, of beneficial fungi that grow, that, that live in soil. So yeah, I think, uh, uh, we're really coming around to the idea that uh, soil, uh, we can't just reduce it down to how many parts per million of, of this element or that element, that there's way more to soil than just uh, the inorganic matter that, that is available to plants. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's all about what's going on below ground. I like looking at the, you know, the beautiful stuff, but I just, I mean, probably this is a minority, but I'm sure you're the same. I love getting a hand lens out, having a look at what's happening in the soil and checking out roots because they, even roots look amazing under a hand lens, right? Oh, they do. They do. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, yeah, it's another whole thing. It gets very messy though. That's the only thing. My husband's like, oh gosh, you've been getting plants out again. And <laughs> or watching, actually, I love watching, uh, rooting a cutting in, in a jar of water or a glass of water, watching those roots develop. I think it's fascinating. More from Scott shortly, but now it's time to hear from our sponsors. This week's show is supported by Cozy Earth, the premium bedding company that helps you get the deep restorative sleep you need. Bedtime is literally my favourite time of day, so it's really important that my bed is the most comfortable place it can be. I got to try out a set of Cozy Earth sheets and they really are so comfortable. Cozy Earth's high quality bedding is responsibly sourced and made from soft and sustainable viscose that comes from bamboo fabrics. Bundle up in Cozy Earth pyjamas made from ultra soft viscose from bamboo this holiday season. Now available in holiday hues. Want to give the gift of a good night's rest with Cozy Earth? On The Ledge listeners can take up Cozy Earth's exclusive offer today Get 40% off site-wide at CozyEarth.com using code LEDGE. That's CozyEarth, C-O-Z-Y Earth.com and use code LEDGE, L-E-D-G-E for 40% off now. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was the law of the minimum. I think this, to me, is one of the keys to understanding houseplant care for me anyway, in that you kind of can't consider any of the factors, the inputs that a plant's experiencing in isolation. You've got to kind of look at the whole picture. Can you just uh, explain to listeners what the law of the minimum is and, and how it applies to kind of houseplant care? The law of the minimum basically says that, that, and this was in relation to soil fertility. This was, was uh, uh, put forth by uh, a, uh, a German 
chemist back in the the nineteenth uh, century, uh, Baron von Baron von Liebig, I think it is. So it's Liebig's law of the minimum uh, that plant gro- growth is limited not by the average fertility of the soil or the the general facility, but it's limited by the one nutrient that is in lowest supply. Uh, and so think of, and this is the diagram in the book, think of a, of a half barrel uh, with staves of differing lengths. Uh, and each stave represents uh, one of the nutrients that plants need to grow. And growth can be thought of as the amount of water that you can hold in that half barrel. And obviously, the water will rise until it hits that shortest stave, and then it begins to overflow. And it's that shortest stave, that one nutrient that's in in limiting supply, that's what limits plant growth, not the general fertility of the soil or the overall fertility. And in fact, you know, if we were were looking at, uh, say, uh, phosphorus in the soil, and we say, oh, well, this soil has got lots of phosphorus, so this plant should grow really well. Well, yeah, but if the limiting factor is nitrogen, then you can add all the phosphorus you want, and that's not going to increase growth if we're looking at the wrong nutrients. So, uh, and, and we can also think of uh, this law kind of applying to plant growth generally. So, if we talk about light as being also something that could be limiting or water could be limiting. Uh, so all of these things, as you say, you, you have to kind of think of them holistically, all happening all at once. Uh, we can't just think of things working in isolation because yeah, that's exactly. not how and things work. With it, I, light, I guess, as you say, the original principle was was nutrients, but I, I think it applies so brilliantly to light because people are like, why is my plant rotting? And they think it's because there's too much water. Well, it is, but it's also because the plants kind of slowed down to to zero on the photosynthesis front because it's so dark that right. the water is not being used. And I sort of imagine it as like, a set of things connected by strings where if you pull one thing it's kind of affecting the other the other thing so that's why in a way it's so complicated to try to give answers to questions because you're kind of like well yeah that is exactly. the problem yeah. but i mean i guess it's the same with animal medicine or anything like it's these things are complex you can't just say well you've put too much water on your plant or yeah you haven't given it enough water well that's all connected to temperature and light and relative humidity, etc., which is also obviously right, tied right, into right. temperature and <laughs> so on and so forth. Yeah, it's all interrelated. Is there anything yeah. from your point of view from the book that you hope people will have one major takeaway? I actually, I think it, it uh, exactly what you were just saying about how everything's sort of connected as if by strings. And I think the interconnectedness of plants in the natural world, I think, is is really what I'd love people to take away from this, uh, that plants are not these isolated co- uh, creatures that just sort of pop up here and there, uh, that there's all this connectedness Underground, we've been talking about mycorrhizae and all and 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 all the underground uh, biome, the the microbiome of plants underground, um, but also, of course, the relationship with with pollinators, the relationship with herbivores. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's that interrelatedness of everything uh, that is to me so kind of amazing and maybe something that. Uh, 
people don't think about so much. And maybe if they read the book, they'll come away with that. So yeah, if I had to say one thing, that's my answer. Inter- the, the interconnectedness of... Well, I think that's a great world. answer. And uh, we've already mentioned about stuff we don't know. You must have come across things where you think, oh, well, that's that's a black hole. We don't know the answer to that one. I mean, uh, yeah. what is there, if there's one thing that you could kind of like find out before you die kind of thing, is there one sort of botany mystery that you like solved? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the- putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, Jane, come on. Um, the, the holy oh, grail. You know, I think. Um, Gosh, and here we are banging on about roots again. I'm going to bang on about about uh, the the microbiome. Uh, that was as I was doing the research for the book. Uh, the the whole microbiome of plants um, was um, or is something that's a really hot field of research right now, and something that you know 20 years ago nobody thought of. No, you know, it was if anything, bacteria or fungi were bad and they should be gotten rid of, and 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 then the plant will grow better. Uh, and now we're realizing that it's quite the opposite. Uh, and uh, there was a, a book that came out, and now I'm blanking on the name of the book, uh, about, the, about the microbiome of humans. So all the bacteria and other uh, microorganisms that live in and on humans and how uh, most of them are either neutral or beneficial. and But a few of them, of course, can cause disease. Uh, and it was a really interesting book. It, it was, you know, New York Times bestseller for a while. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, we're, we humans, of course, are going to be the first area of that kind of research, obviously. Uh, and I think we're just now turning our attention to plants and seeing how important the microbiome of plants is. And this, again, 20 years ago, nobody was even thinking about this. And now uh, there's so much going on with, I mentioned already the, the, the rhizobacteria, but also there, there are endophytes. We, these are microorganisms that live inside plants and, again, have often have beneficial effects. Uh, some are, some have, are probably neutral in their effect, but, but some have beneficial effects. Uh, and, and that was not realized until very, very recently. Uh, you know, if anything, you know, if, if you saw a, a, a microbe inside a plant, you immediately assumed it was pathogenic and bad and had to be killed. Um, but now we're realizing that's not the case. Um, so I think that's definitely an area where we're going to see lots of research coming out in the future. It'll be a while before it, it gets to uh, focused on house plants. I think right now the research is all focused on crop plants, obviously, you know, wheat and soybean and corn. Uh, so it'll be, and, and then maybe it'll eventually get to ornamental plants like petunias and snapdragons, but eventually it'll get to the level where they're looking at house plants and the microbiome of house plants. And I think that's going to be a revelation. Yeah, absolutely. To I was just Googling while you were talking there the name of the book. Was it, uh, I Contain Multitudes by Ed Young. I just, yes, I Googled it. It. Yeah. human micro by <laughs> bestseller and that came up. So I'm yeah. guessing that was it. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah that that's, looks that's really it. interesting. And then it. you realize yeah. that basically you're less, there's less human of you than there is microbe. And it starts to, starts to, blo- yeah. Right. yeah, that's yeah. amazing. It's, Absolutely it's amazing. Scary. Well, that's another book to, I can read that once I finished the, um, the Merlin Sheldrake uh, fungus book. <laughs> Had my mind blown even further. Yeah, well, it's, you fantastic to hear about this new book and i'm i'm just as i say i i rarely 
do blurbs for the back of books, but I really wanted to do it for this one because I just feel really excited for people to have a chance to have a look at this and have their eyes opened. Even if I think, you know, you feel like, I mean, I feel like I've got a reasonable understanding. I've got an RHS qualification, not a particularly, you know, high one, but I do have, I've done some study, but I learned absolutely loads and it was just fascinating to read. So um, I hope some listeners will take a look at this and um, get their hands on it for just to help their understanding of, of, plants more widely and and i'm sure it will help people uh treat their plants better as well so thank you very much scott no i hope so well thank you thanks so much to scott and do check out the show notes at janeperone.com for details of where you can buy scott's new book and also a useful diagram of the plant construction Lego metaphor that we spoke about at the start of the interview. And if you always ignore me saying go and look at the show notes, I really would go and look at the show notes because you'll also find transcripts of older episodes. So if you're the kind of person that wants to check exactly what somebody said, or perhaps you prefer to read rather than listen, Or perhaps you know someone who is hard of hearing and may want to enjoy the show through the transcript, then that is what that transcript is there for, to make the show as accessible as possible to everybody. So do go and check that out. I put a lot of work into those show notes, so I'd love you to take a look at them. A hat tip to my new Patreon subscribers this week. That's Haida, Patricia and Laura, who became legends, and Abby, who became a crazy part person. And I currently have a sore hand from writing out my Patreon cards going out to those at the legend and superfan level. More details about that in the show notes. Time for a quick Q&A before we go. You may remember back in episode 240, Rowena was asking about fluval stratum and I gave a few details about how I use this substrate, which is originally designed for aquariums. Frank got in touch to tell me about his experiences. I think Frank's in Sweden, actually. And Frank's been using fluval stratum for about a year and a half for rooting cuttings. And apparently there is a Facebook group called Growing in Stratum, which I will link in the show notes for you. I think I'm going to be joining that one, too. Frank's had a lot of success rooting cuttings. He describes cuttings as doing astonishingly well. And Frank's technique is to have a layer of laker in a small jar, then stratum on top with the cutting, either stuck into or laying on the stratum. The water level should almost cover the laker, i.e. almost up to the stratum. I don't think it works as a substrate for adult plants. Maybe it can also be used for growing some kinds of plants from seeds, but I have not tried that. And Frank suggests using small jars for propagation because fluval stratum is quite expensive. And also notes that the balls crumble easily when it's wet. So once a plant's developed roots, Frank uses a pin or the like to loosen the stratum around the roots, take the plant out and let the stratum dry out. Once it has done that, it and the laker can be removed from the jar and eventually be reused. That seems to work a few times until you need to use a new batch of stratum. And Frank notes that some people do mix old stratum with ordinary substrate to avoid wasting it, but that's not something that he has yet tried. 
So I hope that's a useful insight. And if anyone else has anything useful to tell me about fluval stratum, uh, well, me and Rowena and anyone else who would like to know, then please do drop me a line to on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. And that's also where you can send your questions. That is all for this week's show. Don't forget, this time next week, I will be at the British Library doing a live stream and live appearance as part of the Indoor Jungles panel discussion, along with Tony LeBritton, Mike Maunder and Carlos Magdalena. So please do check the show notes to book your place on the live screen or in-person ticket. That's happening on December the 2nd, 2022. For the meantime, have a great week. Make sure your plants have a great week and I'll see you next Friday. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Enthusiast by Tours. The ad music is Holiday Gift by Kai Engel. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.